Good morning. It's Monday, the second of October, and this is Govindraj Ethiraj coming to you from Mumbai, India's financial capital. And in Mumbai, as many of you quite deservedly are taking the long weekend off. Today is also Gandhi Jayanti. Our top stories and themes for the day: GST collections or goods and service tax collections steady around 162,000 crore for September. What's the trend ahead? Jet fuel and commercial liquid petroleum gas or LPG cylinder prices increase. Will other fuels follow? Maruti hits record sales in September. Vedanta to split into six companies. And why tech startup investment in Israel is falling. This is a call report with Govindraj Ethiraj. GST collections are up. Gross goods and service tax collections have gone over 162,000 crores in September, around 10% over the same period last year. Gross GST revenue collected last month was about 162,712 crores. Of this, central GST was about 29,000 crores, state GST about 37, and integrated GST was about 83,000 crores. And that usually includes, or rather always includes, import of goods and cess. The revenue numbers for September 2023 were 10% higher than the same month last year. The finance ministry said that during the month, revenues from domestic transactions, including import of services, are 14% higher than the revenues from these sources during the same month last year. And this is the fourth time that gross GST collections have crossed the 160,000 crore mark in this financial year, that's 23-24. Now, overall GST collections are hovering around the same level in recent months or most of this calendar year. Incidentally, in April, GST collections had hit a high of about 187,000 crores, but have not gone back to that level or even near that level after that. So if you were looking for any significant growth trends as represented by goods and service tax collections, that trend is not showing right now. Elsewhere, global oil prices have paused and are not racing as yet towards that much dreaded $100 mark per barrel, at least not yet. While oil cools its heels just around $95 or below a barrel, back home, jet fuel or aviation turbine fuel prices on Sunday were hiked by 5%. Now, this is the fourth straight monthly increase since July. In these four increases, ATF prices have gone up by almost 30,000 rupees to around 118,000 rupees per kiloliter, though prices vary by city. Surprisingly, Mumbai is cheaper than Delhi when it comes to jet fuel, though it's more expensive for retail petrol and diesel. Now, importantly, jet fuel makes up about 40% of an airline's operating cost and does not augur well, I mean the price rises, for the airline industry in India whose fortunes can swing quite suddenly. On the other hand, commercial cooking gas or LPG rates were raised by about 209 rupees per 19 kilogram cylinder. Now, before you jump, the price of domestic LPG or that used in household kitchens is unchanged at 903 rupees per 14.2 kilograms cylinder. And remember, there are elections coming next year. And there are also additional subsidies on household cylinders. You may recall that the diversion of LPG cylinders meant for home use to commercial use, like restaurants, is a recurring controversy. Of course, the big question is, will there be hikes down the line in retail fuels as well, like petrol and diesel, already prohibitively high, though not so prohibitive so as to really slow consumption? The answer at this point, we don't know. Though consumers have been paying the same prices despite crude oil having touched $67 in March, but also, to be fair, when it touched about $117 in May last year. So the government seems to be holding the base. 
Speaking of fuel and petrol and its impact, Maruti Suzuki on Sunday said its total sales increased 3% year on year to about 181,000 units in September, its best ever in a month. In September, the company said sales of its entry-level cars were about 10,351 units. That's 65% down. Just hang on now. Compact cars also declined to about 68,000 from 72,000 last year. But in keeping with the larger craze or trend for sports utility vehicles or larger utility vehicles across the country, that was up 82% to about 59,000 units for Maruti. Among other corporate news, Minings and Metals Major Vedanta said it is splitting itself into six companies to unlock value. Of course, in some ways this is logical. Very rarely have companies survived housing diverse businesses, though even thematically similar in the same company. Elsewhere, Reliance has spun off recently or a little earlier its telecom, retail and now financial services ventures and distanced them from its oil to chemicals pillar. The Adani Group, which is already a diversified conglomerate, has different companies running different businesses from ports to energy. The Anil Agarwal promoted Vedanta on Friday said its board had approved a pure play asset owner business model that would ultimately result in six separate listed firms, which would take around 12 to 15 months to execute. The proposed plans entails five new listed companies, Vedanta Aluminium, Vedanta Oil and Gas, Vedanta Power, Vedanta Steel and Ferrous Metals and Vedanta Base Metals, in addition to Vedanta Limited. We believe the demerger will unlock value and potential for faster growth in each vertical, Anil Agarwal, chairman of Vedanta, said. Vedanta is also expected to act as an incubator and house the shareholding in Hindustan Zinc and some of the company's new businesses including Nickel, Fakor and the Display Glass and Semiconductor. The demerger, this is the important part, will entail a vertical split for every one share of Vedanta Limited. Shareholders will additionally receive one share of each of the five newly listed companies, the company said. And of course, it would be interesting to see how the stock price moves on Tuesday. The markets are closed today, being a holiday, and there are no major cues coming internationally, except the fact that the United States averted a shutdown of its government at the very last moment. In a development that's somewhat a frequent occurrence now, though no less nail-biting each time. Overall, back in the market space, the third quarter did not go very well for emerging markets thanks to a stronger dollar and surging US yields, apart from, of course, China, which has been seeing much outflows. Emerging market stocks just posted their worst quarter in a year, wiping out the majority of 2023's gains, and currencies aren't far behind, a Bloomberg analysis said. Back home in India, it's never been a better time to, well, raise funds. The number of initial public offers launched during the first half of 23-24 were the highest in almost 16 years. As many as 31 IPOs raised about 27,000 crores in this period, according to Prime Database quoted by Business Standard. During the April-September 2007 bull run, in contrast, 48 IPOs totaling about 21,000 crores were launched. Now, that was also the last bull run, which did not end very well, though for reasons and triggers that might lie more outside India than within. Nevertheless, that's the way it ended. The total number of deals in the first half of 23-24 was about 2.2 times that of the same period of the last fiscal year, though the amount raised was lower. In the first half of the last financial year, IPOs worth about 35,000 crore were launched, but the notable one, which many may recall, was LIC or India's largest insurance company and state-owned company, the Life Insurance Corporation, and its 21,000 crore IPO adding to the tally. Investment in Israeli tech startups is declining. Why? 
From Indian IPOs to a market everyone in the world watches, since it's a barometer of sorts, particularly for technology and maybe more so in this age of AI. Investment in Israeli tech startups declined for the seventh consecutive quarter, according to new data that showed a sharper drop in funding than other global hubs Bloomberg is reporting. Tech startups raised $1.7 billion in the third quarter, 10% down from the previous three months and 40% less than the year earlier period, according to a report by the Israel-based Startup Nation Policy Institute. In the first nine months of 2023, tech investment in Israel was down 63% from a year earlier, compared to a 43% drop in the United States and a 48% decline in Europe, Bloomberg said. While a global slowdown is likely the main cause of that decline, Bloomberg quoted the report saying political instability in Israel probably contributed to the country's sharper drop in investment. Israel has been rocked by nine months of protests now over government plans to weaken the country's judiciary. The report also said, and Bloomberg quotes, that the number of both local and foreign venture capital funds active in Israel has slumped this year. One third of Israeli funds and more than 40% of foreign funds that were previously active in the country have yet to invest this year. While this could very well be the case of reverting to a baseline because Israel had seen higher flows than before, I tried to understand what exactly was happening. And to do that, I reached out to Nir Linchevsky, a 20-year veteran of Israel's VCPE ecosystem and managing partner at Israel Secondary Funds, which manages over half a billion dollars across three funds and invested in startups and venture capital funds, and to get a more ringside view from Tel Aviv, as it happens. I began by asking him why tech investment in Israel was slowing down and whether that was linked to the political instability in the country. Well, I think the simplest answer is it's just part of the global trend of the post-bubble decline in private funding. So there's various reasons, but anything that applies in the US or elsewhere globally is happening in Israel. It's no different. Right. So one of the things the Bloomberg seems to suggest is that because there is political uncertainty, particularly in Israel, that could be one reason that the funding is slowing down. How do you look at it? Well, I think that they doesn't support it. You know, any, everyone here in Israel obviously has a political opinion, but thank God we have uh, data to look at as well, not just opinions. And just today came out the statistics for the Israel benchmark. If you compare 2019 to 2023, Israel, Europe, and the U.S., and you can see that we are roughly where we were, all of us, the global tech industry and the VC industry. We are at the pace of funding, which is roughly similar to 2019, maybe even a slight bit lower. And Europe didn't rise as fast as Israel, and therefore the decline was not as steep. The only reason is that the bubble didn't expand there that much. When you look at Israel in the U.S., the increase and decrease that happened during the bubble and then post-bubble are quite similar. Right. So the figure I had is first nine months of 2023, uh, tech investment in Israel is down 63% compared to 43% in the US and 48% in Europe. Anyway, but let me put the data aside for a moment. Need as you look at it, are you seeing this investments going into similar types of companies? Is that composition changing right now? Yeah, of course. First off, just to round up that last bit, Israel rose faster and therefore it decreased faster. But we're all back at the same spot today. As far as types of startups, I think the main variance is around stage. So when you look at early stage startups, mainly seed and series A, there is a very significant demand and appetite still for investing because people perceive it as companies that are built into the new environment, the new market, and have enough time to ramp up their actual revenues and business 
in a business environment that will be much easier post any type of uh, crisis. When you look at the Series B onwards, it's becoming much more difficult. And I think the reason is twofold. While companies have raised a ton of money, so a good portion of those companies simply don't need to raise their capital. And they prefer to push it out as far as possible just because if they have ample money to their business and they don't necessarily want to face today's. The other side is many companies today are struggling with the legacy and very high valuations, which don't allow them to get funded. So the funding, generally speaking, this funding is there. The growth stage startups or even funds like myself, secondary funds and focused on growth stage companies, we have the capital to deploy and we are interested. We are looking for those companies that have already put behind them the legacy structure, the valuations, the overfunding, and are now operating far more efficiently in the market. Right. You raised about $312 million for your third fund last year. So I'm assuming that's still being rolled out. So what are the most interesting sectors or themes that you're looking at this year as we speak? Well, for us, it's less about the domains. You know, obviously, there's a lot more interest across all stages in AI. But being a secondary players, we like to see the signal and not the trend. So for us, AI, for example, or generative AI, is quite early yet. We will give it another year or two till we can measure the actual success of the companies operating there. So where we are focused today is actually those companies that either have proven excellent management capabilities, and you can see some companies at the scale of 20 to $100 million in revenues that have made astounding transitions of both maintaining growth but being very, very efficient at the same time. There is some trade-off, but they are performing well in today's market, and this is really a validation of management capabilities uh, more than beeping. So this is one place where really focused on measuring whether performance of companies, and you can really distinguish the ones who were always cut out for this market, for a tougher environment, love the competition, and they stand out. Uh, versus the ones who have are slower to move and then are in a little bit of a freeze today. So excellent performance stand out today and easier to see. And alongside these, I think there are several, you know, specific industry domains where we have more interest, but these vary over time. Right. Last question, Nid. Any one stock that you think that we could be looking out for from your portfolio in the coming year? I'm really excited about two companies that have a lot of similarities. Both of them started out focusing on application of AI to a huge vertical market and are transforming it. And both of them, of course, are enjoying the tailwinds of today's market, but they were really the pioneers like two, three years in the past. So one is AI doc revolutionizing the medical technology, which is doing outstanding things across the globe with presence in over health systems. And the second company doing a roughly similar thing is a company called Buildus, which is doing the exact same thing, revolutionizing the construction market by flying AI to it. And both of them are doing projects on a scale that seemed like a dream even two years ago. Right, Neil. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you very much, Gobin.
There are two sets of macroeconomic signals one usually looks out for when it comes to understanding India's economic health or any country's economic health. Broadly, the first is internal or within the country. Key among them at this point could be inflation and price rises. The second could be interest rates. And then there is external, which could include oil prices, the strength of the currency, that's rupee versus the dollar, which in turn is linked to India's exports, imports, capital inflows, and all in turn linked to the country's current account deficit. Over the weekend's core report edition, I spoke with DK Joshi, the chief economist at Crystal Limited, and asked him in our macro view segment about how all of this came together at this point of time and what are the signals that he's seeing closely and how they stack up in terms of importance. For example, did you know that India's exports to the West are holding steady, but to Asia are down? Let's find out. See, what's happening, we did some work on our export trends. Service exports, yes, I think we have a surplus. It sometimes moves up, sometimes moves down. But the merchandise, we always have a deficit. Now, within merchandise, I think the trend is a little discomforting because our exports to US and Europe have remained reasonably strong compared to Asia. Asia is the fastest growing part of the world. So I think our exports slowing down to Asia much faster than slowing down to the West is something that needs to be corrected over a medium term. In the near term, I think with the global growth slowing down, your exports will be hit. That happens every time. In the near term, you can do much about it. But over the, over the longer term, I think we need to correct this imbalance. Just to give you an example, share of exports to Asia-Pacific region has fallen from close to 34% in FY19 to around 26% right now. So that's a, quite a sharp fall in the share. And this is to the fastest growing part of the world. So that's why I think this needs to be reversed. And do we know why that's happening? It's quite broad based. One reason is that we are not part of any major uh, regional trade agreement. So what we have done is we have done FTAs with many countries who are part of these agreements. Uh, the benefit of that will play out over some period. But I think the benefits that you get from being a part of an overall free trade agreement I think you possibly don't get from uh, individual free trade agreement. So that's a likely hypothesis. I think we need to see how it plays out. Because what's really interesting is that we are part of one free trade agreement with ASEAN. And our trade has done reasonably well there. I think even exports are holding up there. And before I go, for our CEO diet segment, Dr. Nandita Ayer spoke to my colleague and producer Joshua Thomas about all the effects alcohol has on our body and our health and alcohol substitutes for social occasions. Remember, today is a holiday. For the full article, you can find the link in the description. I think everybody knows the dangers of alcohol, but these health risks such as cardiovascular disease or liver disease, etc., they've always been associated with heavy and binge drinking. So people always assume that, hey, I'm just a very light social drinker. So, you know, there is no risk for me. But a very recent publication by the WHO, it reveals that even light and moderate drinking are uh, huge risks for cancer. And alcohol itself causes seven different types of cancer. And it's a known type 1 carcinogen, which is in the classification of carcinogens, which are agents that cause cancer, it is on the topmost risk level. So just being aware that even a light drinking, like even one sip of alcohol, there's nothing good to be had from that. And it is uh, dangerous with respect to uh, cancers. And of course, 
heavier chronic drinking can lead to uh, liver disease which people are aware of and hypertension and other repercussions but the most important takeaway that i want to drive home from my article is that what we consider as harmless social drinking also has health risks so you're talking about social drinking and most people's consumption is in social situations so if we're cutting alcohol out from social situations what are the best substitutes so one of course is just uh, you know to sound plain and boring one is just water and uh, soda those are just the basics and then of course there's the fresh lime soda and all and even actually compared to alcohol even a diet cola is safer because there's no proof whatsoever that diet cola is harmful to you in a social setting one or two diet colas you're having even that is safer than having alcohol so those are the first rung of drinks of course these days uh, this whole zero proof movement is picking up hugely which means brands are coming up with non alcoholic versions of rum beer wines etc which have the taste of the original spirit but of course zero alcohol content and while people may think why this is required people can just have a mocktail but that's not true you have the ritual of making yourself a drink or a cocktail or having it with friends you have all of the things that are there in the original stuff except the alcohol content which is what we are looking to avoid we're not looking to avoid socializing or having fun right so i think those kind of spirits and they're increasingly being available in uh, high end restaurants and i'm sure it's going to be picked up very soon even in the home setting people will stock up bottles of these then of course my personal favorite is kombucha which is a fermented beverage made from black tea and it comes in a variety of flavors and there are so many brands doing really good kombuchas these days and it's natural it doesn't have any artificial colors and flavors it's also great to mix in with other beverages to make your own non alcoholic drinks so that's one of my other favorites and the other thing of course is tonic water earlier we used to only get this branded canned tonic water which is just like sugar water but again with people focusing on artisanal beverages even tonic water is coming up in avatars like elderflower and cucumber and grapefruit and so many different really good natural flavors that uh, just having it with some ice and a slice of lime is a great option that's it from me for now do visit www.thecore.in subscribe to our newsletter listen to our podcast send us your feedback and we look forward to hearing from you bye for now this was the core report with me govind raj ethiraj do stay connected with more of our coverage at the core you can check out our website or sign up to our newsletter at www.thecore.in that is www.thecore.in or follow us on linkedin twitter and facebook as well now we would love your feedback on how we can make business more interesting and relevant to you including our reporting on india's vibrant manufacturing sector write to us at feedback@thecore.in at thank you for listening